and welcome back to AGRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really fantastic and I think really important show for you today. Quickly, before we get started, remember, April 24th, we will be having a live AGRAC episode here at Johns Hopkins before a live studio audience. And if you are interested in being a part of that audience, then stay tuned and shoot us an email at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Let us know you're interested, and we will get you more details so you can be part of the audience for the first ever live ACRAC podcast. All right, let's get back to the show because I have with me, and I'm just thrilled to have with me, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, who is a professor and vice chair of strategy and innovation in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She's also the founder of the Brave Enough Movement, and that is a movement uh, meant to empower women in medicine and anesthesia, and a really important one. And we're going to talk today about women in anesthesiology and how we can help promote their success uh, and things that we want to think about uh, for those of us involved with residency training or just in general who are in the field and want to be able to be allies uh, as we try to uh, promote the success of the women we work alongside. So, uh, Sasha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. I think it's an amazing resource. I tell my residents and fellows all the time and my other uh, colleagues to check out your podcast. You do amazing work with this. And I I just, I know how much work goes into something such as, uh, you know, our passion projects with this. And I just want to say thank you for not just having me on the show, but all of the work that you do to promote the field of anesthesiology. Well, thank you for saying that. That's incredibly kind of you, and um, I really appreciate it. So let me uh, start by asking you how, uh, apart from obviously being a woman in anesthesiology, how did you uh, become aware of or get involved in in kind of some of the inequities um, that exist in medicine, both at large and anesthesia specifically? Um, was it your own personal experience? How, what, what do we know about kind of what inequities are out there, and how did you get involved in, in taking this as a real uh, you know, cause of your own? That's a great question. I love that you asked me this question because I'm a student of change and I'm a really good example of someone who knew very little about inequity when I started in medicine. And if you would have asked me as an assistant professor, if I really had a a view of inequity, I had a very narrow view. And I would say that I didn't really start experiencing or seeing inequities around me or the challenges that women face in medicine until I advanced in my career, which was very opposite of what I thought was going to happen. So I had this view of women in the trenches because I was in the trenches and I thought, well, I I think things are pretty equal and I don't really have time to even think about if they're unequal because I'm just trying to struggle to be a mother and a wife and the best physician I know how to be and also be an academician. And then when I started kind of climbing the ranks of leadership in nationally in my subspecialty societies and within my own institution, I really saw how isolated I was as a woman in medicine. And I saw that my experiences started to change. So the more I actually matured in my career and the more I succeeded in my career, the more I was able to see things from a different point of view. And I recognized that It was harder than I thought it should be (laughs) when for women at the who are just starting out um, at the junior faculty level or they're just starting their new job. They've joined a private practice 
and there's a lot of isolation. And so I thought originally like, oh, the more I become successful and the more I mature in my career, the more easier it would be for to be a woman in medicine. But sure. I actually experienced the opposite. So I started to educate myself more from a personal perspective, just needing support, uh, realizing how isolated I was. I also was quite burned out at that period of my life. And I recognized that part of it was just isolation and feeling that the people I was trying to emulate were mostly men and they were awesome men. They're, they're great leaders, but they didn't identify with some of my struggles. So I started to recognize that I needed to have a connection with other women and I needed a community of other women to really succeed even personally in my own institution. And that's what drew me to this topic. And I will tell you, Jed, that most of my mentors at the time I started to kind of dip my toe in gender equity work told me not to do it. And they Mm. warned me because they said, you know, you have the successful career as a cardiac anesthesiologist you're very well known in echocardiography circles, you're publishing, you have a grant, you have all these things. So this isn't a fun topic to just, nobody really wants to talk about. It, it makes everybody a little uncomfortable to talk about equity, whether you're talking about uh, sexism or racism or whatever, it, it's just an uncomfortable conversation. And they, they really said, you know, Sash, why are you pursuing this? Because you are successful. And I said, you know, that's true, but what it has taken me to get here is I, I don't, I want to make it better for the women coming behind me. So now I have a, an enormous amount of support from he for she's like yourself and Jake Abernathy, who you work with is a wonderful example of uh, a leader in, in anesthesiology that is, is in tune with equity issues. But back when I kind of started this, it was interesting because the, the the my mentors who were mostly men really were trying to protect me from even stepping into this space. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, and not not uh, something that's surprising to hear. But I I get I understand it now that you're explaining it, and um, obviously I'm so glad that you ignored that advice uh, because <laughs> you've done such amazing work in this space. Um, you know, uh, so I think that. Um, it's a. It's clearly something that you've done in a in a very altruistic way, as you said. I mean, you've been very successful, but you want to help so that women coming behind you have mentors, and that they. It's not as much of a challenge, or at least it's an you know an equal challenge as what it would be for for men. So that we're facilitating this, and there aren't barriers um, in that shouldn't be there. Right. Exactly. And and I think that you know I don't. I, I probably have a more positive outlook on it than maybe I should, but some would say, but I don't think that most of our leaders who in healthcare, 87% of leaders, you know, are men. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think most leaders in healthcare come to work every day and think like, I'm going to keep the women down. Like I'm going to hold women back today. That's my goal. (laughs) I, I really don't think that. I think we are so taxed in leadership in medicine that we have so many things we're trying to accomplish that we don't know a lot of times it's just education and awareness. And I know in my own department, we have, once we're aware of a problem, everyone, whether it's a man or woman, wants to fix it, wants to address it. It's just making sure that we we see women and issues with women in medicine. And we even recognize, and it's not just women, but also people with families and parents and, and people that... Um, are a different race and a different and the struggles that they face in the healthcare system that um, 
we may not even be aware is adding stress to an already stressful environment. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, I'm so my wife is a black woman who's a pediatrician. And I if it wasn't for her, I mean, you know, again, this is what white privilege is, right? I have the uh, I'm a white man. And therefore, I have the, you know, inherent privilege, whether I seek it or not to never know about this stuff. Um, and if it wasn't for my wife telling me things like the fact that she's routinely uh, mistaken to be the cleaning staff right. or to be the nurse, yep. um, uh, you know, it's that uh, kind of stuff that you're right. I mean, I don't think that you know, the head of my wife's group comes in thinking, oh, you know, I want my, uh, you know, I want my uh, pediatrician uh, colleague here to be treated that way. You know, he's not actively promoting that. And yet you you can't do anything about it unless you're aware that it's happening. And so I think what you're right. And so, you know, a lot of what what the work I think that you're doing is to spread that awareness. Absolutely. And and I would I would say that most people, when they are aware they, they do change. I, I, I think that it's in our DNA as physicians to be educated and to constantly be trying to promote uh, evidence-based medicine. And so along with that, when we can show evidence and data of inequities or, or challenges or obstacles or obstructions that are either unconscious or conscious, I think most people will are open to change. It's never a fun conversation to have. It's, you know, it's sometimes I'll sit at meetings and go, oh gosh, here I go. I'm going to have to speak up. <laughs> I don't really want right. to speak up again. I don't want to be the person to say, actually, we're, we're having some, you know, benevolent sexism here. Um, right. We're, we're not trying to be sexist, but we're actually being sexist in our discussion. Um, I, I'm not always the person that wants to do that. Like, I just want to, you know, drink coffee and like make everybody laugh or something, but <laughs> That that's right. what I'm called to do. And I, I feel that I have a lot of privilege and I think that I need to use it to make sure that, that I'm just bringing an awareness to my, my environment every day. Yeah. And I'm so glad you do. Can you give me an example? I mean, it doesn't have to be a real one, but you know, something that kind of fits with what you were just saying, yeah. where you might see some quote unquote, you know, benevolent um, sexism yeah. going on that you might speak up. Yeah, absolutely. So this is very common. I think it happens in all of our circles and you could probably come up with an example as well that we're maybe sitting around and we're having a discussion on who should start a new educational initiative in the department. And it's going to come with a title and perhaps some money, but certainly some opportunities for academic growth and development and productivity. And we have, you know, John and Sue. And, you know, Sue has put in an enormous amount of work. She may even have made one or two years of experience more than John, but John is also very qualified. They're both very qualified individuals, but Sue is just getting ready to have her first baby. So we're talking about this and we say, you know what, we don't want to, we know Sue, she's a really hard worker. She's a great colleague. And we know if we ask her, even if she's going to be stressed, she'll say yes. And we don't want to pressure her or put any pressure on her. So we're just going to ask, we're just not even going to bother her with this. We're going to ask her to, we're going to ask John, we're going to say, John, you're our guy. And what happens is we are coming from a good place. We're coming from a place where we care about Sue. We are consi- we're being considerate of her uh, well-being. But we, are, we have all of a sudden created a gap. We've created a micro gap in the career development of two individuals based on we're never even offering it to her. 
right? So, and, and more so, our real question should be, what can we do if to help her if she actually wants this job and she's about ready to commit to a year of nursing her child? What can we, is there something that both of these people can share this responsibility? Or how do we make the job role or the job fit work for a woman who also is a mother? So that that is a, a really easy example. I think it happens all the time. And this is how pay gaps start. And this is how promotional gaps start and leadership and opportunity gaps start. And, and we think to ourselves, well, we didn't mean for to keep Sue back or to, to deny her from a choice, but we did, even if we're coming from a good place. Right. Yeah, that's such a great example. And I think like the word you used, benevolent sexism, right, is that, you know, we need to recognize that sometimes we think we're actually promoting, we think we're doing something for somebody, but actually it's promoting the the sexist, uh, you know, gap that that exists and, and that's um, causing a problem. It's almost, you know, like what we need is what we have with need blind admissions, right, where you say, look, let's just pick the person who, you know, we think would be best in this job and then figure out how to support them in making it happen. And if that happens to be that the person we, we think is best for the job is about to have a baby, the answer is not don't give them the job. Right. The answer is figure out, like you said, how can we support them so they can do both? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, people, when people will do whatever they, they will do whatever you ask of them if they feel valued. So if they feel like they're valued enough that they're going to do a job and you're going to help figure out how to, because you value their expertise so much, you value their leadership, you value what they bring, they will get the job done. And I think that sometimes we often, we project our own limits on other people or, our, or we just don't want them to feel like they have to do it because we're coming from a place of leadership. So it's interesting to me because medicine, we're so creative, especially anesthesiologists. You know, we're in the operating room and we're constantly having to change um, how what our treatment plan is. You know, we take care of critically ill patients in the ICU and we uh, address, you know, chronic pain issues. We're so creative with so many different things in anesthesiology. But when it comes to work fit and work roles or work schedules, we just kind of go back to, well, this is what an FTE is, and this is what the job is, and this is what it is to be this. And we really need to kind of blow that up and think differently and strategically now that we know these inequities exist on how we allow people to work and really value them in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thinking outside the box, you know, I, I loved a, um, uh, I think it was a tweet from Ed Mariano who uh, mentioned that he routinely asks when he's invited to come give a talk, if he can bring his kid with him and, mm -hmm. you know, and has never been turned down. And, you know, what an interesting thought. So, in, you know, if you're thinking, oh, I'd love to have, you know, this woman come speak, but she's got a new baby at home. So maybe not the best time to invite her. But that again, would be a, another example of what you just described. Why not think outside the box and say, you know, why don't we invite her to come with her kid or even maybe with her, you know, kid and, and whoever else can help support her, you know, I mean, uh, these are ways to make it happen without uh, taking away opportunities. I love that. I love that example. And I think I totally agree. I think we're really, we have some of the smartest people in the world in the field of medicine. And I, I really think that we can extrapolate that into our workday and how we support one another in the workplace. 
Right. And some, so much of it is thinking about it. You know, uh, for example, you're putting together a conference. Are you going to have rooms for women to nurse uh, or to pump? Right. I mean, that's something that, and I, I mean, yeah. let's be honest, if you're a man putting together this conference, especially if you don't have a wife and children of your own, you, you just, you know, out, out of no malevolence at all, you just, it probably wouldn't even occur to you because no, exactly. You, yeah. You've never lived that. So you know, it's these kind of things that, that can make such a difference, I think, as long as we're aware of them. Yes. And that's why diversity at the top is so important. That's right. why it's so important to have the people around the table to have diverse ideas and, and come from different backgrounds because they that's what makes, you know, our if you look at in the business sector and in industry and in tech, the most successful companies and when you measure that success by money, ROA, ROI, you measure it by customer service scores, you measure it by innovation, creativity, have diversity at the top. And right. the reason for that is because of what you just said. Because if you have a programming committee that is made up of the same uh, gender and the same race and the same age, they're going to make one, they're going to be very homogeneous and those meetings are going to be really efficient. <laughs> Right, right. There's going to be little discussion and there's going to be you're going to miss a huge um, opportunity for, to think about exactly what you said. Is there ability of nursing stations or do they have to go all the way back to their hotel um, to do that? Um, are we thinking about the programming for the social activities? Are we having golf events? Because we know that typically women and minorities are not going to go to golf events because those things are not typically part of our uh, childhood. So it's a lot of things that like that to think differently outside of the box to really make sure that the people that you're serving and the people that are, that you're leading are actually um, part of the program that you're creating. Absolutely. That's so important. So, um, let me ask you, when we try to address uh, these issues, what movements are out there? So you started one I mentioned up top called Brave Enough. So tell me a little bit about that and then other movements. I mean, I've seen on Twitter things like hashtag women in medicine, hashtag women in anesthesia. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about what those uh, what the goals of these movements are. Yeah, so there's a lot of great leaders in this space in different fields of medicine and uh, in healthcare overall. Um, I'm one of the founders of Time's Up Healthcare, and that's a great organization that's just really out to bring awareness to organizations about equity and safety in the workplace. Certainly the women in anesthesia group that started as kind of a grassroots uh, group that would just get together during the ASA meeting now actually is a, their own organization and they have, uh, they're in line with the committees and et cetera and building of the, of the ASA itself. And that's a wonderful organization that you can get plugged in if you're a woman in anesthesiology or if you are a man in anesthesiology who really wants to support um, equity in your own department, you know, definitely get involved in that organization. You can follow them on social media. You can join and get all of the great information and data. Uh, Brave Enough was started um, really out of a place of burnout for me. I was, as I described, I had a lot of success academically, but inside I was pretty empty. And if you would have about five years ago, come up to me and said, you know, do you want to work tomorrow? I would have said, no, I would mm. rather like work at Lululemon or 
Athleta. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I was pretty lo- lonely. And I was also a perfectionist who had put myself on this path of achievement and didn't know how to get off of it. And I felt like the medicine I was practicing, I was so lonely and so overwhelmed with the work that I had taken on and also feeling like a failure as a mother. So there were a lot of things going on in my life. And I started brave enough after I, it it really started from me sending out a text to about 10 women, some of which I knew through my, from through the ASA or the SCA and some that I knew through social media and or med school um, and said, Hey, do you want to be my friend? <laughs> Literally, this is yeah. what I did. Um, and I started a text group that was just very positive and encouraging. And we just shared struggles and obstacles and encouragement with one another. And then that became a Facebook group. And then I started brave enough so that I could really have a public voice to some of the things that I was reading and and seeing in the Facebook group, which was all actually very unifying and empowering. Because I think when we come together and we have a common struggle, uh, we know that people, that's when people actually heal. So I started Brave Enough um, and called it Brave Enough because honestly, I had the website built for 10 months before I hit publish because I was so afraid of what this would do to my academic reputation and who mm. I had built myself to be as Dr. Shilkut, which was very different than um, who I realized I truly was authentically. And I I had this conflict because you know, we have academic medicine and then we have social media and then we have academic medicine where I was known for echocardiography. But then I also started doing this gender equity work. Well, how does that fit in and how do these things meld? And so I was brave. I had to be brave enough myself just to put, push the publish button on my website. And I did that. And then now I have courses and, and retreats and conferences for women in medicine. And, and it's a very nice blend of academic work that I do in my passion project. And I'm very fulfilled and, and I love what I do, but it it's interesting because it came from a very low place in my life. Um, and so I always tell women when they, when I quote women that are in my classes or I meet at conferences that come to me and say, you know, I'm really struggling. I, I'm a, I'm starting my interventional cardiology practice and I don't know how to do this. And I, I have a young child and I don't get to spend time with my spouse. And how do, how do I do this? I always tell them, you know, this, uh, the reason I'm here is because I came out of a very, this very similar space where I didn't know the next step, but it starts with connection and it starts with community. So that's, there's so many different wonderful groups out there to belong on. If you're not on Twitter and you're listening to this podcast, I would definitely encourage you to get on Twitter and and be part of the conversation because you're going to find pockets of people that you can connect with. Yeah, that's great. And you wrote a really um, fantastic piece in the New England Journal about the uh, social media kind of empowerment that can um, that social media can play a role in for women. And and we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Um, And I think is a really nice uh, summary of this as well. You also have a book coming out. pretty soon, actually, I think in February. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and and what that will cover. <laughs> so the book is called Between Grit and Grace, and it is about how to be feminine and formidable and how I have often realized in my life that there are times where I'm really gritty as a woman in medicine, as a leader. You know, I can go to a code and 
basically, you know, elbow, elbow my way to the top of the head of the bed and take charge. And I can, I can run a code in my sleep basically. And I can, there's times where I am very um, aggressive in the workplace and I need to be, cause I'm, I'm dealing with life and death situations. And I was reflecting in my career as at, at, there are, there are times that really require me to be a leader. And yet often after I like say run a code and I've, you know, asked for this and demanded this and requested this and, and, you know, gotten control of the situation, then I would walk around the room and I would find myself playing nice, like to the nurses or the staff or, you know, Oh, how's, you know, how's Billy's soccer going or, Oh, right. how's this, you know, and I would never see my male colleagues doing this. And I realized that it was because I was acting very agenic, like I was being very masculine and having more masculine traits that for men are seen as powerful in the workplace, but for women are often seen as in conflict with our likability. And so I recognize in my life when I look back that there have been, there are two things that I need. There is grace because man, have I made some mistakes in my career and I've made some you know, mistakes with people. And I've made some mistakes in medicine and just as a human being. And I think medicine requires an enormous amount of grace. You know, we, Absolutely. all of us have, have had those patient times where we look back and we, we perseverate on something we missed or a mistake that we made. And yet we also require a lot of grit. And I think that we, as women, especially see those two things as very opposite. Like we can either be this, like, you know, badass leader woman who like goes in and is the kind of the queen bee and who takes charge, but isn't really liked. Or we can be this likable woman who, you know, brings cookies every day, every Friday to the lounge and, right. <laughs> you know, but, and, and everybody likes us, but we're not really given leadership opportunities. And it's this constant conflict. And what happens is you lose your identity as a woman because you you have to kind of choose and you have this very narrow margin of how you can be in the workplace. Mm. And to me, there's power when we accept that we can be both of those things. Like, you know, I, I used this example just about a month ago. I took back a patient that I can tell you, I sat in the pre-op bay at 7 a.m. and I cried with the family because yeah. I honestly could not tell the family that I, we were coming back. And I knew that, that pain. And I saw them, you know, I'm the last person to speak possibly to their loved one. And I sat there and I, I cried with their, them. But then the minute I hit the door, I was very gritty. I was like, this is what we're doing. And everyone's listening to me for the next hour so we can get this airway. And we, I'm in charge and no one's going to like, you know, if I ask for something, it is because we need it. It is not because I'm yelling at you or I'm angry at you or I'm being bossy. It's because this is what I'm in charge. And I mean, I was gritty and I, and so, and I'm both of those things and it's okay to be both of those things. So that's what the book is really about. It's about my experiences. And I interview about 30 women um, and share their experiences in the book with, which I think is really powerful. Yeah, what a powerful message in just, you know, something that I think would benefit everybody to read, whether man or woman. Mm -hmm. It just really sounds like an important, important message. Um, I'm excited to have that come out. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Um, so what let's let's talk about um, there. I'm sure. In fact, I know for a fact there are men out there who uh, either are aware of this, but don't know how they can help or aren't aware of it. But once they become aware of it, would like to help. What can men do? 
who want to help. Um, there is a, you mentioned earlier, there is a hashtag on Twitter, he for she. Um, tell me a little bit about that. And, and what, what do you say to men who say, how can I help? I love this question because I get this question almost every time I speak on this topic. After I talk, there's a group of men who want to know what they can do. And typically these are men who are leading in their in their departments or their communities and they really care. And I love when I see this because we need men so much to to help us in um, to change medicine and to bring equitable and safe environments because men make up the majority of our leaders. And so I know that there are men listening that are probably thinking, like, what can I do? And so there's a cut. The one thing that I tell men when they ask me this question is I say more than one. And I know you're holding your drinking coffee this morning out of a cup that um, says more than one. And it's this movement that I started because there is power when you look around the room, whether you're wherever you're making decisions, whether it's at a committee meeting or a faculty meeting or a committee on, you know, blood conservation or whatever you're doing. If you are a man and you are sitting around a table and you're making decisions, the first question you should ask is, is there more than one woman here? Mm -hmm. Because there is a lot of data actually to show that when there's more than one woman sitting around a table, number one, the women speak more. So there was a long time throughout my career that I was the only woman at several meetings and several committees. And I kind of it fed my ego. I would think, wow, I'm the only woman here. This is really special. But actually, it wasn't good for me to be the only woman there because I didn't speak as much, um, according to studies out there, if there's more than if there's two or more women. And the thing is that there's more idea sharing when you have more than one woman and the men listen. And so it's so important to make sure that there's more than one woman at on a panel if you're, if you're putting together a panel of speakers, um, if you're putting together a committee, if you're putting together a, a task force, a group um, in leadership, because what it also does is it's a, it's a double win. Number one, you're going to have more diverse thinking and thought sharing and leadership, but you're also going to have the women in your department or around you seeing the value that you value women. And they're going to also see, wow, if she's doing that, I can do that. And so overall, it's a win-win. So more than one is something that I always kind of preach and and teach because I can't tell you how many times I've said this and I'll get a call or an email like, hey, I'm putting together this panel for the AHA. And I just realized that, and and it's a, a he for she calling me who's like, you know, I just put together a panel of all men and I didn't even... I realize it's because I don't know any women who can speak on this topic. Can you point me in the direction? And it's so awesome to see our male colleagues really stepping up. Yeah, absolutely. So more than one is great. And I think there's a Twitter hashtag more than one as well. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a great concept, as you say. And I, I would imagine applies to, you know, certainly women, also to minorities that we absolutely. really, we don't want to, we don't want to stop at saying, great, we have, you know, uh, we have a, an African-American on the panel or, you know, we have a um, woman on the panel. We really want to go beyond just one for all the reasons that you said. Absolutely. And if you think about it, there, you know, a lot of times I'll hear, well, I asked this woman or I asked this, um, uh, you know, person of color and they said no. And I said, and the next question I ask is, well, how many are there? Well, they're, well, they would be the only one. Well, do I really want to go across the country and travel to be a part of a committee where I'm 
like the only woman or the only person of color? Probably not. I probably don't want to spend my time doing that. Right. So I think we have to really think about who we're asking and making and what and the environment that we're creating for them. Because, you know, if you tell me like, hey, do you want to join this women in medicine event where there's going to be like, you know, 10 women um, all diverse on a committee? I'm going to be like, yeah, sign me up. We're going to have fun. I'm going to have things to talk about with these people. But I may be a little more hesitant knowing I'm the only one. Right. That makes total sense. You mentioned a couple of times um, as a noun, he for she. Um, and there's, of course, also the uh, Twitter hashtag he for she. Tell me a little bit, bit about what that is. So this was a movement started years ago um, and internationally. And it's it's an actual organization. Um, but I think it's uh, it's become a noun for men who go out of their way and are really that see inequities and you know, every institution has an equity, every department. It's not about like, do you have it or do you not have it? You know, if, if you don't believe you have it, then you probably need to read some data. So we all have it. We all have biases. We all have unconscious and conscious bias. It's, it's proven. But to me, a he for she is someone who, you know, doesn't just know the data, but actually is really aware of their surroundings and is aware of the power that he has to influence and to improve equity. And so I see this and it's so cool because I've seen in, in specifically in the, in the specialty of anesthesiology, I've seen so many male leaders who had no idea that we even um, had, you know, inequity in, let's say, an organization, one of our subspecialty organizations. And then they find out that, oh, we've never awarded a woman this award. Or, wow, we put together a program for 20 years that we had, you know, 10% women on. And they're like, how can we change this? And not how can we change this like in 10 years, but how can we change this today? And it's just so encouraging to me when I see these men who you know, for, for a long time, we're unaware. And now they're currently aware and they're not just aware they're, they're like taking actionable steps to do things about this. And there's a lot of men in anesthesiology who I look up to that have been aware now and educated, and they're not just stopping there, but they're actually like he for she's and they're putting women on panels and they're putting women forward for awards. And they're, they're giving women the voice that they'd never have had in the past. It's just so encouraging. Yeah, that's great. And a really important movement, uh, as you say. I think one of the really key things, too, is that, you know, there are definitely some men out there who hear about this and feel attacked, right? They they feel like, well, if I, you know, uh, kind of subscribe to these beliefs, it must mean that I'm saying I'm doing something wrong. And I think that's a real misconception, because the idea yeah. is that just like someone who's very wealthy you know, acknowledges that they are lucky to have the wealth they do and often will will be philanthropic and will, you know, help people who ha- don't have that same luck. I mean, that to me is what this is about is, you know, being a white man, it's not that, you know, I individually have done some horrible thing I need to atone for. It's that I have innate privilege. I didn't do anything to get it other than exist. But and I don't and there's nothing wrong. I haven't done anything wrong to right. get it. It just means that I have it. Just yes. like someone who's born into great wealth, they didn't do anything to earn that wealth. They were just born into it. And so, you know, being able to say, I'm not 
I'm not saying I'm a bad person because I have this privilege. Not at all. I'm saying that I just acknowledge that I have it. And therefore, I hopefully will be willing to try to do some good work and help the cause to uh, empower those who were not lucky enough uh, to be born into what our society has, of course, completely arbitrarily decided is a, you know, is a privileged class. Yes. And I think that that's such an important, I'm so glad that you brought it up because it's, it's uncomfortable when you are speaking about this to the majority and what, whether that's gender or race or socioeconomic class. And it's really hard um, to, if all of a sudden you're, we're casting blame or there's shame or there's feelings of uh, fault. And I think that we have to re- really remove that because we're not going to get anywhere if people are afraid to ask questions, you know? So sometimes I'll even have um, men, you know, who are my friends that they don't even want to put it in an email. They're so afraid to ask, like, how should I approach this with this woman in my department? Um, And I'm like, you know, it's sad that we've gotten to the space where we feel like men can't ask questions um, when they're actually trying to help, you know? So, I think that we need to embrace the fact that there is privilege and you're right. You're born into it. And it doesn't mean that you've never had to work for anything. It doesn't mean that you are this, you know, that you walk around and and you have a silver spoon in your mouth and, you know, you've never had a struggle because let's face it, there's, there's, we can say there's privileged people, but there's privileged people that have also suffered um, with a lot of illness or, you know, different things that we don't, get to choose um, experiences that happen. But what we're really saying is there's, there is a something that you were born with that isn't your fault. It doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong, but it actually empowers you to make change for those that are not born in the same privilege. And that's what the difference is. And so it's not this shame or blame. And I'm, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm, I'm really uh, careful about that because I, I don't think that that people change if you shame them um, or if you blame them. I think change happens in people's minds and in people's hearts when they connect with another human. And so I think it's really important that we, we did exactly what you just did. And we called it out as not like a blame or shame, but just a fact. And really there's power there. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you said it better than I did. And and I was thinking back on, what I said, I just want to be clear. I don't want to obviously, you know, um, offend anyone. I, I, I don't in any way mean um, that, you know, being born a white man is somehow lucky as in that it's better. Um, right. In fact, that's not true at all. When I say lucky, what I meant is exactly what you said. And I, as I said, I think you said it better, which is that, you know, luck in the sense of having this privilege, not luck in the sense that it's a better thing to be. Right. Um, no, I know exactly what you meant. And I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because maybe it'll spark conversation in some of the listeners to have these open conversations with people. Um, I think sometimes when, you know, a white male or a white person like myself hears privilege, we automatically get defensive. And we think that means that we've never had to work for anything or we've had an easy life. And those two things are very different. And that's not what, you know, our people of color are saying that what they're saying is, you know, when Sasha, you walk into a target and you leave and something goes off in your bag because they didn't take the thing off, you get the privilege of, oh, the person at the checkout just forgot to remove that 
tag. But if I was an African-American woman, I probably wouldn't have that same privilege. That's the difference. It's not that Sasha Shilkut hasn't ever had to work for anything or I didn't have to, you know, I didn't drive a car with rest on it till age 30 because I did. (laughs) Or I didn't like pay my student loans and all these things or I didn't like haven't failed or I haven't had heartache or things happen to me that are really difficult in my life. That's not what they're saying. So I think we need to just talk about these difficult topics, but come from a place of community and not a place of blame or shame. Yeah, couldn't agree more. You mentioned earlier that uh, at the time you started Are You Brave Enough, it was a tough time. You know, you were uh, trying to be a mother, you were trying to be a successful um, physician, uh, probably among many other things. Um, and I think that's something that um, that that I and my colleagues in, in residency leadership have seen frequently is that we have uh, you know, women who are residents who, uh, especially at the time when they have their, they're having a baby maybe for the first time or having another baby, um, where it's just oh, really energy. tough. And I've had women come to me and say, you know, I feel like I, um, can't do it all well. I'm not able to be a good mom and a good resident and a good, mm-hmm. um, uh, and a good wife if they're married, you know, and, and that's a, a real struggle. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure you've had women share the same concerns with you. What do you say to those women? That is a very real and authentic and raw conversation that you first want to tell the person, thank you for being brave enough to and vulnerable enough to come and talk to whoever they're talking to about this, mm-hmm. because we often see it as a sign of failure. And we know that when women burn out, we emotionally withdraw. When men burn out, they become angry. So, you know, the angry physician is often a very burned out physician. Women tend to withdraw. So if if someone is actually, if there's a trainee or a, a junior faculty or someone that is coming to you and saying, I'm really struggling. I feel like I'm failing as a parent. I'm failing as a physician. I'm failing as a, a resident or trainee. The first thing to do is just validate, 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 because medicine is so difficult and it is, it is very easy to see when we are feeling down on ourselves that it's a problem with us. And that's always what we do. We always internalize it and we, which is not helpful to our psyche or our well-being at all. So the first thing I always do is I validate everything that she is telling me. And I'll say, you know, it is extremely difficult what you're doing right now. Being a resident, whether you're, you have a family or not have a family, um, it's extremely difficult and challenging. And the second thing is I tell them that there's hope, that you're going to get through it. And I really appreciate that they're brave enough to come and talk about it because that means that they uh, want to get better and they want to try to figure this out. Um, the third thing is I try to get them immediate reprieve. So, and I do this for, I mean, I counsel a lot of physicians, both men and women on burnout, and they always look at me like I'm nuts when I say, well, the first thing we have to do is get you some respite. Like we have to get you some rest. Um, and they're like, I'm burned out. I have all these deadlines. I have all these things. I have all these calls. Like I don't have time to, to take. And I'm like, that's exactly when you need it the most. Yep. Because it's not that you're going to take a day or two off and you're going to heal, but you're going to take a day or two off and all of a sudden you're going to gain clarity. 
Because when we're stressed out, we're in low self and our brain is trying to protect us. And so it literally cannot even think about how to make things better. But when we take time off and get away from the situation, so away from the stress of the operating room or the, of the, or the ICU or the clinic or wherever we are, and we are actually kind of spend some time alone, we gain clarity about what it is that is really causing our stress. Maybe it's um, something simple like getting some help in the home to clean and do laundry. Now that might sound like trivial, but if you are a resident and you're coming home and there's no food in your refrigerator and your laundry is piling up and your baby is screaming and your spouse is upset because they're also working, what we tend to do is push all of these home duties onto our spouse, <laughs> which is not right. the answer because they also are probably living in a stressful environment with us as the trainee. So I always say like the first thing is like let's identify some easy wins that we can get you some help to unload some stress so that you can actually gain clarity about the anxiety that you're having or the stress that you're having. Is it call? Is it studying for a test? Is it not spending time with your child because you're having to empty the dishwasher when you get home? Like, what is it that we can try to alleviate? And I always try to give them hope that it's going to get, it's going to get better. It, you know, the fact that you're actually bringing it up to someone's attention shows a level of maturity that you're going to get out of this space. Absolutely. That all seems super important. And, you know, it's exactly what we try to do as well. Um, and I think, you know, one thing you have inherently, of course, is your own lived experience that you can share. And I think an authenticity as a woman with children in medicine, you can say to women with children in medicine, you know, it gets better. And that that is strikes true because you've been through it. And so what I always try to do is give those same reassurances, but also acknowledge that, you know, I can't speak to my own. I mean, yes, I had children while I was a resident, but I, it's different. I didn't have to pump. And so, uh, you know, I try to also uh, encourage them to speak to one of my colleagues who has been through it, because I think hearing uh, from someone who's been through what you're going through is very powerful. Yeah, thank you. It is. It, I agree. It is very and it's so good when we can talk to one another about it and just stay connected. It's like a safety net. You know, we all, unfortunately, all of us know someone in medicine who has either left medicine or who has developed um, a, a substance abuse issue or who has taken their own life. And it's a reality. And I always feel like when people can stay connected, they can stay safe. And so I think we have this kind of, we have to look out for one another. You know, I don't think there's an online module that's going to help us. <laughs> right. I think, Absolutely. I think it's the human connection. No doubt. And I think, you know, what I, what I see uh, in some of my residents who are going through this is they feel like they feel very alone. Like you said, when you were having kind of a, a you know, a really rough patch, they feel alone. Uh, they feel like they're the only one going through it. And, and of course, that's not true, but they feel that way. So yes. it's their reality. And to break through that and, and let them see that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're struggling with this, that in fact, everyone who goes, who goes through this has these feelings yeah. that everyone at times feels like they're not a good physician, a good parent. Um, and to be able to talk to someone who's been through it makes a huge difference. Well, and I, and I often think of, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the data that, you know, male anesthesiologists um, in the first five years of their career have the highest uh, uh, rate of suicide of any physicians. And, yeah. and I often think, is it because 
men do feel more isolation, like they can't talk about how they're feeling. I know I've had several colleagues come to my office and shut the door and just break down in tears. And even as a woman who has feels like I know a lot of the data, it's always shocking to me because I'm like, oh my goodness, this, this guy, this guy who, who I like look up to, or who I don't see as having any feelings or anything bothering him is, is in my office, like really breaking down. So yeah. I often wonder, is it because they don't feel like society l- allows them to have that connection or ha- or share um, or be vulnerable in the workplace with a colleague or a friend? And, you know, you don't have to share your, your um, obstacles or your challenges with everybody, but you, you need one friend. You need one person who you can talk to. Yep. Absolutely. So this came up, and let me ask you about it um, specifically. Uh, one of the things I think is particularly difficult is uh, when you are trying to pump at work as a woman who has a, a newborn at home. And I think in anesthesia, it's almost probably it is worse than in any other field. In internal medicine and pediatrics, I mean, I'm sure it's still very challenging, but you're not stuck in an OR. And even in surgery, I recently had a conversation with some surgeons about this and realized that while, of course, it's complicated, you know, as a resident in surgery, they're still an attending in there with you. So, you know, you can you can get out of the OR if you absolutely have to. Whereas in anesthesia, if you are an anesthesia resident in an OR, you cannot leave unless somebody else comes in. And that's a pretty unique and difficult situation. Right. So what what can we as anesthesia training programs do to try to alleviate this burden, to try to make sure that our women who are trying to do this amazing, important thing of of pumping breast milk for their newborn babies don't feel that it's too much of a burden on them. Don't feel like they are being a, you know, a, they feel bad. They feel like they're a burden on, on the program. We don't want them to feel that. We want them to feel empowered to do this and feel like it's, it's something we can facilitate. So how do we do that? That is an excellent question. I, I don't think any man that I've ever talked to has asked such a good question and knows the data as well as you, because this is a really important um really important question to ask. If you look at a recent study, I think it was done in 2017 uh, in JAMA online, uh, they did a research letter where they studied like, I don't know, 40,000 women physicians and anesthesiologists were the highest for gender maternal discrimination in the workplace on this issue. Yeah, And it's exactly because number one, you can't do it in secret. So I can't just like leave the OR and go pump and nobody knows Right. where if I'm in clinic between patients. I can like pop into my office and do it. And nobody knows. I have to actually tell someone and ask someone to stand in the gap for me to go pump. Right. And that is the huge power differential between a resident or trainee and an attending. And everyone knows like you can't, you can't keep it a secret. You can't manage it. You literally have to physically say someone has to come in here and stand in my room and do my job so I can go do this job. So the first thing is to make it very aware that, um, and ask the woman, ask the, ask the mother, like, when do you need to pump? How long do you need to pump? Where do we even have a space for you to pump near the operating rooms or near the ICU? that is private and clean that you can do this because I was just visiting at a very prestigious institution as a visiting professor a month ago, and they don't even have a space. Um, so it's not, and they just built this, this institute, they just built the OR. So they obviously forgot. (laughs) Um, and it's not like it's an old hospital or something. So like, that's number one, where is it? And number two, have a very honest conversation in the middle of the, or at the beginning of the day and not make, 
them feel guilty or punish them in any way. Make sure there's no retribution for this act. This is a health issue. And then the other thing is to look at the data, look at the evaluations of those residents. Are they getting negative evaluations because they asked to go pump or the year that they were pumping? Is there a difference? Is there a change in the perception of their work ethic? Because I think we have to stop separating, you know, on one column, we have work ethic and on the other column, we have well-being. Yep. You shouldn't get to pick one or the other, right? Absolutely. Those, those two things should be complementary. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's so, so important. And, you know, we really, we there's so many ways. There are still institutions where uh, women coming back from a, a routine maternity leave, they had a, a normal delivery, they were out for a month or two on maternity leave, they have to get uh, health clearance to come back, which means they have to take a day before they're back at work, right? A day of their leave where they have to either bring their baby with them or leave the baby at home, go to, you know, the university, uh, human resources or health, uh, clinic, uh, to somehow, you know, why? Because they're, there's something <laughs> you're, you're somehow sick, right? It's not an illness. It's a totally normal thing. So the idea that we're still doing this, you know, we have to rethink some of these systems if we want to support people, I think. Yes. And, and it's funny because it's, some of this is very, it's like common sense. You know, it's common sense that men and women should make the same money for the amount for the same job, doing the same job. That's like, everybody would say out loud that that makes sense, but that's not what happens. So while we can say, well, of course we should give people pump breaks, that's not always reality and that's not what happens. So I think it's really important that we have leaders in education like you who are coming out to say like, this is an issue and we should address it and we should take away the stigma of there being this, you know, negativity associated with asking for a pump break. It's kind of like when you have a bad outcome in the operating room, we used to ask the residents, well, do you want to go home? Well, no resident that really cares about their reputation is going to look at the power differential of someone in power and say, yeah, you know, I probably should go home because I just lost a patient. Right. They're going to say, no, I'm okay. I can work. So you take away the option. Right. <laughs> you say, right. You're, you need to go home and, and take the rest of the day to, to kind of regroup and reflect. Right? right. So this is what we have to do as leaders. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, Sasha, is there anything that we haven't covered uh, that you think we should touch on before we, we sign off? No, it was such a great conversation, and I'm so honored that you had me on as a guest. Oh, I, the honor is all mine. Uh, the, I have learned a lot just from talking to you and, and think that there's just so much uh, incredible stuff. I'll tell you, I have three daughters, and I really hope that they are able to uh, learn from women like you, either you or women like you, uh, when they, whatever career they go in, because it, it is the message I want them to hear is the message that you are, are spending your, your life and career um, putting out there. And I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Jed. Um, I do want to turn uh, to the portion of our show where we make a random recommendation uh, to the audience. So um, if there's anything you are watching or reading or doing uh, that you've eaten or made recently, anything you can think of that you uh, <laughs> would recommend to the audience to check out, um, I'll, uh, I'll let you uh, make a recommendation to them. Well, it's funny because I um I, I, right around the holidays every year, I always like try really hard to resist the William Sonoma peppermint bark, but I swear it's like crack. I can't eat one piece. So mm. if you've never had William Sonoma peppermint bark, that only comes out around the holidays. You got to get a tin of it and share, right. bring it into the workplace so that you don't eat the whole thing yourself. Um, 
I just finished a really interesting book called Drive by Dan Pink. If you're in medicine, um, I think it's a really great read. It's an easy read. And it's really about what motivates people. Okay. And I recommend it, if, especially if you're in any type of business where you are trying to motivate different people to do different things and, and still allow people kind of that passion, you know, project to, to be able to, to stay engaged in their job, but also pursue what they value. So that was a really, a really fun read that I recommend. That sounds fantastic. Um, I will definitely check it out. And I'll say, I think I actually, in a prior episode, may have already recommended the podcast Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, uh, which is an incredibly funny podcast that Conan <laughs> O'Brien uh, puts on. But I will say uh, one specific episode, which I listened to recently, that I'll uh, recommend this time, um, is his interview with Zach Galifianakis, which uh, was actually, I think, the only time I can remember that I was laughing so hard on a morning run that I actually had to stop running to catch my <laughs> breath. Uh, it is just, I mean, you got to like Zach Galifianakis's humor. So if you've seen Between Two Ferns or the Hangover movies, uh, yeah. you know, if you like his humor, this really captures it pretty well and, and is a very, very funny episode of, uh, of Conan O'Brien's podcast. So I'll, I'll recommend people check that out. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to check it out. Awesome. Well, Sasha, thank you again. It was really a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thanks. All right. What a fantastic episode and chance to talk to just an icon of the women in anesthesia movement and anesthesia in general. Uh, Dr. Shilkut, really, um, what a fantastic chance. I really, uh, really enjoyed that. I hope you did, too. Hope you learned a lot. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, hackrack.com where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you're a fan of the show, you can also follow us on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast or I'm at Jay Wolpaw. You can join the Facebook group and join the conversation there. If you have a random recommendation, tweet it to us uh, or send it on the Facebook group or email it and we will add it into the show. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park for the outlines he makes for some of the episodes, to Kimia Kashkuli, our amazing intern, and to Dr. Dennis Quo, who created our original ACRAC music. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Sasha Shilkut, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.